Hey creeps, I'm Taylor and this is TGI Crime Day. Hello everyone and welcome to this week's episode of TGI Crime Day. Uh, Last week I put up a poll on my Instagram and asked if you guys wanted to hear the Long Island serial killer case or the Susan Powell case and it was an exact 50-50 split, which I'm fine with because I wanted to cover both cases at some point anyway. So this week we're talking about the Long Island serial killer and the next episode will be about Susan Powell and all of that craziness. So stay tuned for that. Make sure you subscribe, follow, etc, etc. Uh, This is your weekly reminder to send me your hometown murder stories, the urban legend that kept you awake at night, the ghost you saw uh, at your school, whatever weird thing comes to mind when you think about what turns you into a true crime creep. I want to hear it and I want to share it on an episode. So I really like doing that. It's really fun. So send those to me at tgicrimeday at gmail.com. And then I really did like having the poll option and I would love to get some more feedback on what cases you want to hear and things like that. So Go follow along on Instagram to participate in all of the fun non-crime stuff. Uh, That Instagram is at TGI Crime Day. The Long Island serial killer, also known as the Lisk or the Gilgo Beach Killer, is suspected of murdering between 10 and 16 people over a 20-year span. Between 1996 and 2010, possibly as recent as 2013, if the most recent bodies found were the work of the Lisk, there were up to 16 bodies found dumped on the side of the road near remote beach towns in Long Island, New York. Unfortunately, most of these victims were sex workers, which has had a lot to do with why this killer was probably active for so long. The bad reputation around sex work made it possible for this killer to run wild, because for a long time, authorities simply didn't care that these women were going missing and didn't notice. However, when a woman named Shannon Gilbert went missing in the Oak Beach area in 2010, her mom began a very long journey to get justice for her daughter. Shannon's mom, Mary Gilbert, refused to give up on finding her missing daughter, and her cry for justice led law enforcement to the discovery of multiple sets of remains that are most likely the work of a serial killer, possibly two different serial killers, which is horrifying to think of. Around 4.30 a.m. on May 1st, 2010, a 911 call was made by a frantic woman saying she was in danger and feared for her life. The call came from a gated community called Oak Beach and lasted for 23 minutes. It took over an hour for police to arrive, and by this point, the woman was nowhere in sight. The woman on the call was 24-year-old Shannon Gilbert. Shannon was the oldest of four girls and had a pretty good relationship with her family. It hadn't always been that way since her and her sisters had been split into different foster homes in their early childhoods. Eventually, two of the Gilbert sisters went back to living with their mom in New York, and they all tried their best to reunite as a family and get along at this point. When Shannon was young, she was diagnosed with bipolar disorder and began taking medication for it but didn't like the side effects, so eventually she got off of that medication. When Shannon was just 16, she worked really hard to graduate from high school early. She began working as soon as she graduated at a couple of different waitressing jobs and as a hotel receptionist, and she also started taking online college classes. She was genuinely trying to better her life and move forward and do good things with her life. Eventually, she turned to sex work as a way to make quick money after a friend told her about her experience as a sex worker. Shannon started off working for an escort agency, um, and during this time, Shannon experienced some difficulties, including at least one arrest, drug use, which uh, unfortunately comes with the territory sometimes, and an assault that left her with injuries, including needing to have a metal plate put into her jaw. 
Eventually, Shannon decided to list her services through Craigslist, realizing she could make all of the money this way rather than going through an agency, which led her to the client um, she was with on the morning that she disappeared. In the early morning hours of May 1st, Joseph Brewer contacted Shannon through Craigslist. Joseph was recently separated from his wife and living in his mother's house in a gated community in Oak Beach, Long Island. Shannon and her driver, Michael Pack, took the two-hour drive to meet up with Joseph around 2 a.m. Michael waited in the car while Shannon went inside with Joseph. Within the first hour, there were six different phone calls between Michael and Shannon, which seems like a lot to me, uh, one of which was her asking him to go to a nearby CVS to get some supplies. Eventually, he refused, saying he didn't feel comfortable leaving her there alone and he didn't go anywhere, so nothing happened for a couple more hours. They ended up just staying at Michael's house, or I mean, um, Joseph's house. Around 4.30 a.m., Joseph flagged down Michael and said that Shannon was being strange and he wanted her to leave. According to Michael and Joseph, when Michael went inside to see what was going on, Shannon was in a panic and screaming, they're trying to kill me. She wouldn't calm down and eventually she ran out of the house, past Michael, and began banging on the neighbor's doors, um, screaming that she needed help. At this point, she was already on the phone with 911. And I read in a couple of articles that Joseph also made a 911 call, along with two of his neighbors um, who heard the commotion. For a while, Michael tried to follow Shannon as she ran through the neighborhood, but eventually he just gave up and didn't know what else to do, so he left, which uh, makes me nervous. Um, okay, around 6 a.m., Michael decided to just leave because he thought that she was playing games and trying to avoid giving him his cut of the money from that night, which I don't know if maybe that was something that had happened before uh, because it seems like a pretty big jump to make. She's like literally running and screaming and thinks that she's in danger, but he decided to leave, which is fine. His choice. Um, it had been over an hour since Shannon called the police by the time Michael left, and they still hadn't shown up to see what was going on, despite a 23-minute phone call from Shannon herself, as well as at least two neighbors calling. So Shannon was missing for about two days before her boyfriend Alex began looking for where she went. Shannon was living with Alex at the time, and it seemed like maybe it was normal for her to be gone a couple of days at a time, like with clients or whatever, but eventually Alex called Michael, the driver, and Michael told him he last saw Shannon at Joseph Brewer's home, but she had ran away from him and he hadn't heard from her since. Alex thought this was weird because Shannon had never had an incident like this, so he decided to go confront Joseph, who was the last person she was known to be with. Alex showed up at Joseph's house with a gun and was shocked when Joseph invited him in and explained everything that happened. He was very straightforward, and um, Joseph did claim that he didn't have sex with Shannon, that they just talked for a while while she was there. Which maybe is true if people hire $200 per hour sex workers from Craigslist just for conversation. None of my business. Do what you want. Moving on. Alex reported her missing, and of course, the police didn't bother to ask any questions or provide any initial help because she was a sex worker. Let's not forget, they'd received a 23-minute long phone call from a hysterical woman who still hadn't turned up at this point. They still tell Alex to go home and wait for her, and if she didn't turn up the next day, call the police in New Jersey where they lived, even though she went missing in Oak Beach, Long Island. Which, I'm sure you can guess, is eventually going to cause this hot potato-style bounce back and forth between these two different jurisdictions, which ended up causing a whole mess of problems, but we'll get into that later. Two days later, on May 3rd, 2010... Shannon's mom, Mary Gilbert, received a very weird phone call from a man who lived in Oak Beach near where Joseph Brewer lived. His name was Peter Hackett. And in this phone call, Peter Hackett told Mary that he was a doctor who ran a safe house for wayward girls. He told Mary, according to Mary, that Shannon had been at his house the night that she went missing. 
And also, according to Mary, Peter Hackett told her that he had given Shannon a sedative to help her calm down and that she'd at this point left with her driver. Mary didn't even know that Shannon was missing when she received this call. Shannon didn't live at home, so it wasn't weird that she hadn't heard from her for a few days. They didn't talk every single day, so it wasn't anything out of the ordinary. Um, when later questioned by police, Peter denied that he ever saw Shannon, and he also said he never called Mary, which I just think is so ridiculous because what Shannon's mom, Mary, had no idea who this person was before this phone call, and there's no point in her making something like that up, but um, eventually they were, of course, going to check into the phone records, and there was a call from Peter to Mary in the days after she went missing. Um, to this, Peter said that he actually did make the phone call, but only because Shannon's boyfriend, Alex, had spoken to him while he was searching for Shannon in Oak Beach. Peter claimed that he got Mary's number from Alex so that he could call and offer his condolences after talking to Alex, which, okay. <laughs> However, the call from Peter was made to Mary before Alex even went to Oak Beach to look for Shannon. Once the police started looking deeper into Shannon's case, which was more than a month after she went missing, by the way, they discovered that Peter had used his wife's cell phone to call Mary, and they were able to trace the call to New Jersey, very close to where Mary was living at the time. And don't forget, New Jersey is over two hours away from Long Island. So, someone went out of their way, took their wife's cell phone, drove two hours to make a call to a missing girl's family, and then denied it. I'm just going to let you sit with that for a moment. Of course, people are automatically suspicious of Dr. Peter Hackett in this case. And if he didn't have anything to do with Shannon going missing, and if he truly didn't see her, he should have kept his nose out of it instead of inserting himself in this really weird way that's, of course, going to cause alarm bells. According to his neighbors, Peter was always getting into things he shouldn't and telling embellished stories of his life and the patients that he'd worked with. That's a whole rabbit hole that we could go down, but let's get back into Shannon's investigation. After Shannon had been missing for over a week, Mary and her family went to Oak Beach to put up flyers and do a search for Shannon on May 9th. You probably won't be shocked to learn. Police barely looked for her. They barely checked into anything. They did interview Joseph Brewer, who she spent a few hours with that night, one of the neighbors who called 911, as well as Dr. Peter Hackett and her driver, Michael Pack. They also talked to um, Alex, her boyfriend, and Alex was very upfront with the fact that Shannon did occasionally do drugs. Um, she was bipolar and not currently taking her medication, but she didn't generally do drugs from what I understand. Um... Mainly, Alex was talking to the police in Jersey City, and there was a lack of communication between the Jersey City Police Department, where Shannon lived, and the Suffolk County uh, Police Department, where she went missing. It took a few weeks before they connected that Shannon's disappearance was connected to the 911 call that they had received on May 1st. Uh, unfortunately, it didn't really seem that her case was taken seriously. She was basically just given the label of a drugged-out sex worker, and as we have heard one million times... These types of cases don't usually get the attention that they need or deserve. Uh, if Shannon's disappearance had been taken seriously from the beginning, they would have found her body very quickly. Uh, we'll get into that in a moment. Michael Pack, Peter Habakit, and Joseph Brewer were all cleared as suspects very quickly. And unfortunately, since over a month had passed since Shannon's disappearance, there just wasn't enough evidence left behind, including footage from neighbors' security cameras. Multiple people on this street where she was last seen had security cameras, but the data had been recorded over because it had been weeks since she went missing and they didn't know that they needed to even look for something on their cameras. It's just so frustrating. <laughs> There's going to be a lot of frustrating twists and turns in this case. You'll see. 
Um, so Shannon's case was not being taken very seriously and very little search effort was put in at the beginning. Months after Shannon's disappearance, a Suffolk County police officer named John Malia and his partner, who was a police dog named Blue, were assigned to do some searches around the Oak Beach area. John and Blue searched the neighborhood in the gated Oak Beach community where Shannon was last seen but came up empty-handed. At this point, John was told that their job was done and they, they didn't need to continue the search, which was called off really quickly, and it's unfortunate. Anyways, <laughs> luckily... John was very smart and very experienced and decided that he was going to continue searching this area and he took Blue out to search on their own time. On December 11th, 2010, seven months after Shannon went missing, John and Blue were searching out near the beach because John knew that according to FBI data, most dumped bodies are found 30 feet or less away from the road, which is a fact I wish I didn't know, but here we are. <laughs> it's worth mentioning that the beaches on Long Island where he was searching that were right next to the road were not these beautiful, sandy, warm, beautiful beaches where you'd go on vacation. They were basically just a marshland that was right next to the road. The ground was soggy and overgrown with huge bramble bushes, and it was pretty much just called a beach because it was near water, not because you'd want to go hang out there. Uh, John said that on this particular day, it was freezing and windy, but Blue caught the scent of something and wouldn't quit until he found what he's looking for. This is when John found a mostly disintegrated burlap sack with what appeared to be human bones. Two days later, the search of this area continued, and 500 feet away from the first bones that he found, there was another set of skeletal remains, also in a burlap sack. And then another, and then another. Four sets of skeletal remains were found near Gilgo Beach, but none of them were Shannon. The four bodies found along Gilgo Beach were eventually identified through DNA. The first woman found was Melissa Bartholomew. She was 24 years old at the time of her murder, and she had grown up in New York and went to cosmetology school, briefly working at a Supercuts after she graduated. Melissa loved the city and dreamt of someday owning her own salon there. Melissa was a very petite girl, only 4 foot 10 inches. She had blonde hair and hazel eyes and was last seen on July 12, 2009 in the Bronx. Melissa was working as an escort and advertised her services through Craigslist. Melissa was really close with her younger sister, Amanda, and when Amanda didn't hear from Melissa for a few days, her family began to get worried and tried to report her missing. Unfortunately, the police basically told them she was a sex worker, she was an adult, she was allowed to not call her family for a few days. However, two weeks later, Amanda, who was only 15 at the time, was relieved when she got a phone call from Melissa. However, when she answered the phone, she was shocked to find out that it wasn't Melissa on the phone, but a man who knew a lot of very, very personal information about Melissa and even knew where Amanda lived and what her ethnicity was. Um, she was mixed race, and he made a very rude comment about that fact. Um, so Amanda got multiple phone calls from... Multiple? I can't talk. Amanda got multiple phone calls from this man over the next few months. Every time, he would speak in a low, very quiet voice and would only talk to Amanda. One night, Amanda's mom took the phone from her, and he hung up immediately. On the last call that Amanda ever got from this man, he said, quote, I'm watching your sister's body rot. Yuck. Eventually, the police pulled Melissa's phone records and were able to find that the call had been made from Massapequa, which was a clown, a clown, a town very close to Gilgo Beach. Police later suspected Melissa's pimp, but he had an airtight alibi and was ruled out pretty quickly. In fact, he had also been receiving phone calls very similar to the ones that Amanda was getting. And when they looked into these calls, police found that the number that was calling him was a burner phone, basically, that was registered under the name Mickey Mouse. How can that even 
happen. I don't know. Um, but it could never be traced to an actual person. And unfortunately, since the caller would only talk to Amanda, they basically had to use her as bait, which I just don't understand how at 15 you would be brave enough to deal with this. But Amanda handled herself very well and she did everything that she could to help the police. So she was basically given instructions on how to keep this man on the line as long as possible so they could attempt to trace the call. And even though they were able to trace these calls, uh, they all came from very, very busy areas of New York City, like Times Square, and similar places where there were thousands of people going in and out throughout the day. And this made it impossible to pinpoint the exact location or an exact person making this call. Melissa's family was the only family to receive calls like this, but from the way the next few bodies were found, it's obvious that they're all connected to each other somehow. The second body found on Gilgo Beach was Amberlyn Costello, who was last seen leaving her home in North Babylon, Long Island, in late September of 2010. She was also very petite, only 4 foot 11 inches, and she had dark hair and bright eyes. Amber had four nieces that she loved to spoil and was involved in her local church community quite a bit. At her funeral services, it was said that although Amber didn't have much to give, she did love to give to others and was very, very generous. She used her trials in life uh, to help other people to get through their own hardships. Unfortunately, Amber did have a drug use problem, and even though she got sober through rehab, she eventually started using again when she got involved in sex work. Amber was also advertising her services through Craigslist, and the night that she left, she had been offered $1,500 to meet up with a client, which was almost six times her normal rate. Uh, her roommate at the time said that she seemed unusually comfortable with this client, and when she left, she didn't take her purse or her cell phone. That was the last time that she was seen. Maureen Brainard Barnes was the third victim found on Gilgo Beach. Maureen was 25 years old and was also 4 foot 11 inches, so she was petite just like the other two girls. She was last seen in Manhattan on July 9, 2007. Maureen was a single mom to two kids who were ages 8 and 1 when she disappeared. Maureen lived with her kids in Norwich, Connecticut, and Maureen's sister said that she had always loved to read when she was younger, and eventually she went on to write her own song lyrics and poetry. Maureen's sister described her as bubbly and outgoing, and Maureen was struggling to juggle a bunch of different jobs. She was working for a telemarketing agency and as a cashier at a grocery store, and eventually uh, she was given an eviction notice. She was so worried that she wouldn't be able to provide for her kids, she turned to sex work. Maureen's sister said, quote, she was getting evicted from her house. She needed to get some money. It was her last resort, end quote. She used Craigslist also to advertise her services and was staying at a Super 8 hotel in Manhattan at the time she disappeared. She would stay and work in Manhattan and then go home to Connecticut. And the night that she disappeared um, in July of 2007, Maureen was supposed to go back to Connecticut the next day, um, but obviously she never made it home after meeting up with a client. The fourth body found on Gilgo Beach was Megan Waterman, who was only 22 years old at the time of her death. Megan had blonde hair and dark eyes, and she was the only one of the Gilgo Beach four who was over five feet tall. She was still pretty petite at five foot five. Megan had a four-year-old and was living with her mom at the time of her disappearance. Megan's mom said that they didn't have the best relationship when Megan was a kid, but they became close when Megan found out she was pregnant when she was really young. Uh, Megan was described as fun, caring, and a loving mom. Megan was last seen in early June of 2010, leaving a Holiday Inn Express in New York. She also advertised her services as an escort through Craigslist. In a 48 Hours interview, Megan's mom Lorraine said, quote, The world lost an awesome girl, a wonderful mom, a wonderful friend. Um, real quick, <laughs> these women should always be described and remembered as women, as humans, and they were so much more than just sex workers. These deaths were clearly the work of a serial killer who was preying on 
very specific types, um, petite women using Craigslist to advertise their escort services. And unfortunately, as all of the victims' families have said, police didn't take their disappearances seriously whatsoever. So whoever killed and dumped these women's bodies went unnoticed for years. And police didn't care because in their minds, it was, quote, just prostitutes. As if somehow that makes their deaths okay. It's just so frustrating. Also, according to an article on Oxygen.com, before it was removed in 2010, Craigslist used to have a whole adult section where people would list escort services. And they honestly probably took it down because of things happening like this, but my point is (laughs) that using Craigslist for sex work was not a secret during this time. Um, These women were eventually called the Gilgo Beach Four, and their families still defend them to this day and have said how frustrating it was and is that they were never referred to as daughter, friend, sister, mother. They were always being thrown out as derogatory terms like hooker, prostitute, and it's just, it's so frustrating, it's so dehumanizing, and it it puts a, a space between humans and women going missing and being murdered, and then suddenly it has this weird spin on it where it's like, quote-unquote, just prostitutes, and it just drives me insane. So here, on this podcast, we talk about humans like they're humans, and focus not on their job choices, but on the fact that they were murdered by an absolute monster. On March 29th, 2011, three months after finding the Gilgo Beach Four, police were doing another search for Shannon in this area. Another partial set of remains were found along Ocean Parkway in Long Island. Um, I'm really sad and kind of frustrated that I can't find more about who Jessica Taylor was as a person because, of course, she's only described as an escort and they basically just leave it at that. And in a quote from the Long Island District Attorney at the time, Tom Spada, uh, he said that he knew Jessica and he described her uh, just living and working as a prostitute. Uh, His words, not mine. Tom Spada was a piece of work and you'll find out more about that later, but just remember that name. Let's get back to Jessica Taylor. Jessica Taylor was only 20 years old when she went missing, eight years earlier in 2003. Not long after she disappeared, a jogger found her dismembered body in a wooded area of Manorville, Long Island. Um, Her head and her hands were missing, and whoever murdered her tried to mutilate a very unique tattoo on her hip. Police were able to identify Jessica's body back in 2003, and I'm sure that they were shocked when they found the rest of her remains in Gilgo Beach in 2011. According to my investigoogling, Gilgo Beach is about 45 miles away from Manorville, so whoever did this left partial remains in a wooded area and then took the rest of the remains all the way up to Gilgo Beach. Less than a week later, three more sets of remains were found off Ocean Parkway, a couple of miles from the Gilgo Beach Four. The first set were also partial remains, just like Jessica's. In the second set of partial remains, they were able to link them to remains found previously again in Manorville. So, just to clarify... Jessica Taylor's body was half found in Manorville and half found along Gilgo Beach, and same thing with this second set of remains. So in November of 2000, hunters found decomposed remains of a woman who was referred to as a Jane Doe. They were able to connect these two partial sets of remains, and she was referred to as Jane Doe number 6 until this year, 2020. On May 28, 2020, Jane Doe number 6 was identified as Valerie Mack because of genetic genealogy testing. The FBI was able to release her DNA to labs who helped them to find her biological relatives and the FBI was able to track down um, Valerie's son and her adoptive parents. Valerie lost her parents at a very young age and spent some time in the foster care system before eventually being adopted. 
She went missing when she was 24 years old and was working as an escort, and when she went missing, her son was only six years old. So for most of his life, he had no idea what happened to his mom and where she went, and they finally got answers after so long this year. And obviously those are not the answers that you want to get, um, but hopefully that brought some kind of closure and some kind of an answer to where she went after all of this time. So investigators are still trying to find out if she advertised her services through Craigslist since the website was still very new uh, when she disappeared in 2000, but there were people using it as a place to advertise sex work. On the same day that they found Valerie's partial remains, they also unfortunately found remains of a toddler believed to be around two years old. They were not able to determine if the toddler was male or female, but strongly believed that it was a female. That same day, a third set of remains were found, and they were referred to by police only as Asian male. Uh, he was believed to be between 17 and 23 years old and was 5 foot 6 inches. He was missing multiple teeth and was found wearing women's clothing. They have still been unable to determine the exact time of his death, but thought that the remains had been there uh, between 5 and 10 years, and they assumed, based on the rest of the bodies that were found, that he could have also been involved in sex work, but obviously since he is unidentified, Still to this day, it's hard to know what his story was or how he ended up in this area. Another week passed and two more sets of remains were eventually found. On April 11, 2011, another set of partial remains were found about seven miles away from the last remains found. So police believed that this victim was the mother of the toddler they'd found a week earlier and through DNA testing, they were also able to link this set of partial skeletal remains to another set of partial remains found about 20 miles away in Rockville Center in 1997. That's right, 1997. So we've gone decades where there's all of these bodies that are somehow connected and all dumped in the same area. It's just mind-boggling to me. So in 1997, a hiker came across a dismembered torso in a Rubbermaid bin along with a red towel and flowery pillowcase. The woman was believed to be African-American, possibly between 20 and 30 years old, she had a distinct tattoo of a peach on her left breast, and she is still unidentified, and they refer to her as peaches. So just to clarify again, half of her remains were found in the woods in the 90s, and half of them were found along the beach in 2011. Police found one more set of partial remains along this same area. Um, it was another Jane Doe, and like a couple of the other victims, her partial remains matched another set of partial remains found years earlier in 1996. On April 20th, 1996... A group of people were walking along Blue Point Beach and found the dismembered legs of a female that were wrapped in plastic. She had a couple of distinct scars on her left leg that looked like she had had surgery on her ankle, and her toenails were painted red. Even after finding the rest of her remains in 2011, she still remains unidentified. At this point, there had been 10 bodies found along Gilgo Beach um, along the Ocean Parkway, but remember, this all started with the search for Shannon Gilbert, who was still missing. Okay, I know there's a lot going on in this case, so let's do a quick recap. So, 10 bodies have been found on Gilgo Beach. Four of them were wrapped in burlap and dumped right near the road next to each other. The other six were spread out, but still very close to the original four. There was one John Doe, one Jane Doe, and one Baby Doe who have never been identified. All of the identified bodies were sex workers, and most of them had been advertising their services through Craigslist. Unfortunately, Craigslist keeps everyone's information very, very private, which isn't unfortunate for those people not using it to find murder victims, 
but really inconvenient when it would be so easy to be able to track down exactly who had been in contact with the Gilgo Beach Four. They would have all been getting emails from the same person, meeting up at the same place, etc. But unfortunately, that information is nowhere to be found. Let's get back to where our story began with Shannon Gilbert. From the very beginning, Shannon's mom, Mary, had her eyes on Dr. Peter Hackett and for a very good reason. His strange involvement inserting himself into Shannon's disappearance put up a lot of red flags for her and for, I think, anyone who listens to this case. It took months, but Mary didn't give up her fight to have the area around Peter Hackett's house searched. Finally, in December of 2011, the police agreed to do the search. And on December 6, 2011, 19 months after Shannon went missing, the police found something in the wet marsh behind Dr. Peter Hackett's home. So police discovered Shannon's purse, cell phone, shoes, and jeans. And after finding these items, the police continued to do the search for Shannon. And a few days later, on December 13th, um, her body was finally found. Shannon's skeletal remains, why is that such a hard word for me to say? Shannon's skeletal remains were found about a half mile into the marsh directly behind Peter Hackett's house. Um, they said that the the view from his back porch, if you were to look straight out, obviously there was marsh and trees and bushes and things in the way, but you could have seen her body directly from his back door if there hadn't been all of that, like the weeds and everything. So seems a little sus to me. An autopsy was done, and in May of 2012, Shannon's death was officially announced as an accidental death. Police basically took it upon themselves to come up with a storyline that she had been in some kind of a drug-fueled stupor, wandered into the marsh, and drowned. Uh, the water at this time would have been like a foot or less, which I understand it's very, very possible, especially if someone was in an impaired state, to drown in a few inches of water. So that's not totally unlikely, but her body was also found facing up, and in her autopsy, her um, bones didn't show any signs of having drugs in her system. And it is very possible that she suffered, suffered some sort of mental break because of her bipolar disorder. Um, and maybe her death was unrelated to the other bodies found along Ocean Parkway. But Shannon's family never believed her death was accidental. And even the medical examiner officially said that her cause of death was inconclusive. Eventually, Shannon's family set up an independent autopsy performed by Dr. Michael Baden, who is a forensic pathologist, and he has done a lot of, like, big-name cases as a forensic pathologist. He's very, very good at what he does. And according to the family's lawyer, John Ray, who also has just been an advocate for this family and for the other victims, he seems just wonderful. Um, according to John Ray, Dr. Baden said, quote, the autopsy findings are consistent with homicidal strangulation, end quote. And from what I understand, he came to this conclusion because when Shannon's remains were examined, they found that she was missing her hyoid bone. And the hyoid bone is a small horseshoe-shaped bone in the neck that is commonly broken during manual strangulation. Um, even though police were able to rule out Peter Hackett, the Gilberts still strongly feel he had something to do with Shannon's death, even if he was not the one who directly murdered her. The Gilberts um, filed try that again. The Gilberts filed a wrongful death lawsuit against him in 2012, which is still open today. Their theory is that Peter Hackett did see Shannon the night she disappeared and gave her some kind of a medical sedative, which, according to Mary, he did tell her on the phone. And, of course, Peter Hackett denies that he ever made the phone calls. We've already heard that in the beginning of this story. He had a lot of different reasons for why he called Mary, supposedly. Um, I don't want to go too deep into the theories of what certain people on the Internet think happened with Peter Hackett because there's not a lot of evidence to back it up, and I'm not here to, like, spread rumors and do all of that allegedly stuff. So, allegedly, 
there's some suspicions around Dr. Peter Hackett. I highly suggest you look into them because it is, it's a little weird. Let's move on. Um, so once Shannon's body was found near his house, Peter sold his house and moved and he doesn't really do interviews or like wants no part of the investigation, all of that, which makes sense because it's basically just a smear campaign against him because he acted very weird. I'm sorry. He just did. He inserted himself to where he shouldn't be. And that's just kind of what happens when you insert yourself into murder cases. People are going to point fingers at you. That's just my opinion. No one yell at me. Okay. There has never been a person of interest officially named in Shannon's case. There's also another weird piece of Shannon's story that has to do with her 23-minute 911 call. It has never been released to the public or to her family. No one's heard it. And I think that a lot could be explained by this phone call. Uh, there were other phone calls that were made that night by other people involved in the story as well um, that have never been released. And there has been a very long court battle. I mean, it's been a decade um, over this phone call. But the Suffolk County Police will not release it. And even earlier in 2020, there was a court order for all of the 911 calls from that night to be released. But again, the police refused. The police do not believe Shannon's case is connected any, in any way to any of the other bodies found along Gilgo Beach. In my opinion, I don't think Shannon was necessarily a victim of the Long Island serial killer. But I do think that she was met with some kind of foul play. And in a really awful turn of events... If Shannon hadn't gone missing that night, and if Mary hadn't been so insanely persistent and fighting for her daughter, the other victims dumped on the side of this road may have never been discovered. Or there may have been discovered years and years later with even more victims among them. And In the years following her daughter's death, Mary Gilbert did everything she could to find justice for Shannon and for the other victims. She led a lot of search parties, she led a lot of vigils, and she really helped to bring together the families of the Gilgo Beach Four, and she got kind of included in that as well. Um, in the, girl, in the book, The Lost Girls, it talks a lot about that. And then also in the movie, it portrays that really beautifully, how much work she was doing to try to get justice for these girls. Um, but unfortunately, another tragedy struck the Gilbert family in July of 2016. One of Shannon's sisters, Sarah, suffered from schizophrenia. And Sarah had dealt with her mental illness her whole life, but she had been hospitalized many times for it. But after Shannon's death, it seemed to make matters worse and push her over the edge. There was an incident of violence against Sarah's son, and Mary ended up getting temporary custody of him. Unfortunately, Sarah was again hospitalized for her schizophrenia and was not receiving her monthly medication when she attacked her mother. Sarah had a psychotic break and was convinced that Mary was evil, and so she stabbed her to death in her apartment. Sarah was charged with second-degree murder and fourth-degree possession of a weapon. She was sentenced to 25 years in prison. Um, eventually, the Long Island serial killer case went cold. There was no more movement, no more interviews, no suspects listed. And unfortunately, <sighs> this was due to the fact that the police weren't really trying to do anything. And now I know this gets said a lot. People are quick to blame the police, etc. But really, truly, in this case, there was so much corruption and so many shady things happening within the police in this area. It's insane. We could do an entire episode just about the corruption within the Suffolk County Police Department, honestly. Um, so... There's facts, there's lawsuits to back it up. I'm not just spouting crap. I say it all the time and I will continue to say it because I really do feel this way. Most police are the good guys. Most of them want to protect and serve and keep their city safe and they're in it for the right reasons. However, and this is a big however, there is a lot of corruption that happens and a lot of cover-ups. Luckily though, a lot of this is being fixed in Long Island and finally this year in 2020, there has been more movement in this case and an effort to find answers. I read a really great um, New York Times article written by Robert Kolker, who wrote the book Lost Girls, which is about Shannon's story 
and the other Long Island serial killer victims, and it was made into a really good Netflix movie. You should watch it if you haven't already. Anyways, Robert Kolkor wrote an article about the updates in the Long Island serial killer case and talked a lot about the newest Suffolk County police commissioner, who is an absolute badass woman, who's doing a ton of incredible things for the city. Um, her name is Geraldine Hart, and when Geraldine took over the position in 2018, she was coming off of 20 years working as an FBI agent. She was eager to move forward with the case of the Long Island serial killer because she grew up in Long Island. She knew a lot of families who lived in the area, and she had heard about this case since, you know, 2010. It was very familiar to her. So she felt that there was just not enough being done. She felt like there was stuff that could be being done and moving this case forward, and so she jumped on it immediately. According to Geraldine, who was in the FBI at the time the bodies were discovered in 2011, the FBI tried to get in on this case, but were shut out by the Suffolk County Police in 2012 before they could even create a profile about the murders. Which, by the way, just real quick, I think it's insane that the FBI basically has to get permission to look into these cases. Police departments are able to tell them, hey, go away, we don't want you, and I just don't understand how that's even a thing. Like, it seems like in these cases there's something nasty going on behind the scenes and the FBI should get involved and they just don't have the clearance to do it. Like, shouldn't the FBI rule over all? I don't know. Maybe that's... Maybe that's incorrect. Let me know if anyone else agrees with that opinion. Um, so in the case of the Suffolk County Police Department, it, there was a lot of shady things going on behind the scenes, and that's exactly why they were pushed out. The police chief at the time, James Burke, didn't want the FBI involved in the Long Island serial killer investigation because at that time, the Justice Department was looking at him for suspicion of police corruption. And I don't want to go too far off into this tangent about this piece of crap human, but hearing his story might help you see why this case has been unsolved for so long. So, in 2012, James Burke beat the absolute crap out of a man who was under arrest for parole violation. And remember, at this point, he is the police chief. So, a man named Christopher Loeb had been brought in on a parole violation for stealing a bag from James Burke's car. The bag was full of ammunition, sex toys, and pornography. You can't make this up. And honestly, you know, not to kink shame, get yours, do whatever you want. Um, but apparently James Burke was very, very upset that this bag was stolen from him. And he assaulted Christopher Loeb at the police station. And the attack was witnessed by multiple people at the police station. So other officers saw this happen. Then James Burke went on to threaten and intimidate detectives to deny that they saw the attack. One of the people who helped in this cover-up was the Suffolk County District Attorney, James Spada, who we talked about a little bit before. He was the DA who barely paid any attention or cared at all about the Long Island serial killer victims. So, yeah, I would say a lot was happening at the Suffolk County Police Department, and they certainly weren't busy looking into these cases correctly. Luckily, both of these men were fired and convicted of conspiracy, and according to the New York Times article by Robert Kolker, who, again, just seems like one of the best humans, this incident caused the Suffolk County PD to be known as one of the most corrupt law enforcement agencies in the nation a trophy that no one wants to win. Thankfully, Geraldine Hart is here to fix that and trying her best to fix that image, starting with trying to move things forward with Shannon's case and to find justice for all of the Long Island murder victims. Geraldine, who I hope doesn't mind me talking about her as if we're on a first name basis because we're best friends. Anyways, seriously though, she just seems really wonderful. Anyway, my girl Geraldine was inspired by the Golden State Killer case being solved decades later and was like, you know what? It's our turn. Let's get this thing done. I'm paraphrasing, of course. She probably said it a lot more eloquently than that. Um, but now that the FBI was officially involved in the case, things could finally start moving forward. And this was when 
The first round of DNA testing was able to reveal the identity of Jane Doe number six, who we talked about earlier. Valerie Mack's identity came as a complete shock to her family who had tried to report her missing years and years ago, but for some reason, they were not able to. The FBI ran Jane Doe number six's DNA through a genealogy website and were able to link her DNA to her aunt and then made the ID from there. And this was a huge deal because Valerie Mack's case was the first in New York to be solved by genealogical DNA. And from what I've read, it looks like law enforcement is trying to use this same method to identify some of the other unidentified victims that they were able to pull DNA from. Geraldine also did something really, really smart. She used the publicity of the Lost Girls Netflix movie to gain more attention for the real-life cases for these murder victims. On January 18th, the day that the Lost Girls trailer was released, the Suffolk County Police had a press conference and shared a piece of evidence that had never been made public before. There was a leather belt that was found near one of the victim's bodies with initials that had been hand-carved into it. And these initials were WH or MH, depending which way it was held. The police have not shown a full picture of the belt, have not said what size the belt was. Um, They're keeping that to themselves, but they do believe that this was handled by the killer. So they're putting it out in hopes that someone might recognize it or might know someone with those initials. Um, Also, at this time, she took a moment to address Shannon's 911 calls, and she said that the calls were not being released because they were still being used as evidence in an open investigation, which makes me really, really, again, think that there is something important on those calls. This is all speculation, of course, but I'm feeling very hopeful. (laughs) I just want this case solved so bad. It's so frustrating. Um, Also, in my opinion, one of the best things that Geraldine has done for this case is show some freaking empathy to these victims and their families. She is finally shining a light on the fact that things were not handled correctly the first time, and she is clearly making her best effort to bring some comfort to these families and the unidentified victims, which I just, again, think is the coolest. In a quote about this case, she said, There's a lot of work left to do, but there is momentum, and I'm going to continue to use that momentum to move forward. Seriously. Geraldine, if you're taking best friend applications, I'm in. Like she would ever listen to this podcast. Okay, moving on. All right, we've talked the basics of the case. We've talked the 2020 updates. Let's get into the theories. As I mentioned before, there has never been a official suspect or person of interest in this case, which is just bananas. How is there no evidence? Uh, I just can't. I'm not going to get into that. It's fine. We're doing everything we can. (laughs) Of course, there are a lot of people who believe that one killer was responsible for all 10 bodies found along the side of Ocean Parkway. It wouldn't be the first time a killer spent decades taking innocent lives, and it wouldn't be completely impossible for someone to change their tactics over time, which would be why some of the bodies were found dismembered and some of them were found wrapped in burlap. However, there are a lot of people who believe that this was two different killers, The Gilgo Beach Four were obviously all the same M.O. All petite sex workers hired through Craigslist, strangled to death, wrapped in burlap, dumped along the same stretch of road. Valerie Mack, Jessica Taylor, and the Jane Doe called Fire Island Jane Doe's remains were split between two areas. There are also other victims, some identified, some Jane Doe's, who were found in similar areas that may or may not have been linked to the Long Island serial killer. This episode is already really, really long, so I'm not going to get into each of those potential victims, But there's a great article on Oxygen.com by Gina Tron called um, Who Were All the Victims and Suspected Victims in the Gilgo Beach Murders of Lost Girls. I highly recommend that you go read that um, article if you want to know more about each of those people. There is also the unidentified Asian male. The Jane Doe referred to as Peaches and her unidentified toddler daughter that don't match any of the other methods as the bodies that were found. 
but that doesn't necessarily mean that they're unrelated. Again, people change their tactics over time. Personally, I don't think it's unlikely that multiple people would have the thought to dump bodies along the stretch of highway. It's horrifying and it's disturbing to think that there is more than one person who would think of doing something that disgusting. But honestly, if there's one serial killer using the area as a dumping ground, is it really that crazy to think someone else might have that same idea? Yuck. I don't even... Let's move on. <laughs> the Suffolk County Police Commissioner, my best friend Geraldine Hart, also believes it could possibly be more than one killer. There are some possible connections to four bodies that were found in Atlantic City, 168 miles, which is about three and a half hours away from Gilgo Beach. The bodies of four women were found in a drainage ditch in November of 2006. These victims were Barbara V. Breeder, who was 42, Molly Jean Diltz, who was 20, Kim Raffo, who was 35, and Tracy Ann Roberts, who was 23. All four of these women were believed to have been working as escorts and were found face down with their heads facing east. They were all fully clothed but had no shoes or socks on, and it's believed that they were all strangled. This case is also still unsolved with no prominent suspects, and according to a recent review or a recent interview, while there isn't a definite connection yet, the Suffolk County PD is, quote, in touch with Atlantic City. So we'll see if there's anything that comes of that. There is one more name that's often associated with the Long Island serial killer case, and that is a man named John Bitrolf. In 2014, John Bitrolf was arrested for murder when he was linked by DNA in a cold case of two different women. Rita Tangretti and Colleen McNamee were both found dead in the early 90s. Both women had been violently beaten, mutilated, and posed, and then left in the woods in Long Island. The DNA comes into play when a DNA sample was taken from John's brother, Timothy, who was arrested in an unrelated assault case. Good job, brothers. Uh, when Timothy's DNA was run through their system, it matched almost perfectly to the DNA found on Rita Tangretti and Colleen McNamee's bodies back in the early 90s. And when police learned that Timothy had a brother, they immediately brought John in for questioning, and they were able to get his DNA, and sure enough, it was an exact match. It was a very shocking connection to make, especially shocking because John was seen as a good guy. He was a family man who was involved in his community around Oak Beach, and when they looked more into John, they discovered that he lived in Manorville, which is just a few miles from where the partial remains of some of the victims we talked about earlier were found. There's also connections between Rita Tangretti and the Gilgo Beach Four. Rita's daughter was apparently best friends with Melissa Bartholomew, who was the first body found in the Gilgo Beach Long Island serial killer case, which could mean that there's something going on there, but it could just be a coincidence. There was no other DNA found on any of these bodies to link John Bitroff to the Long Island serial killer, and I feel like it seems kind of unlikely, but it also could be possible. And it also seems weird that someone would murder two women in such oddly specific ways and then just completely straighten out and never kill again. So it seems like there's got to be more going on there. Just speculation, of course. John Bitroff was charged and sentenced to 50 years, um, 50 years to life for the two murders in 2017. Personally, I don't think that he is the most likely suspect, but his name is brought up a lot when you do some investigating about the Long Island serial killer. I really need to just start saying Lisk because that is such a mouthful. The Long Island serial killer. So I thought it was worth mentioning. One last theory that I want to touch on is another possible connection to former Suffolk County Police Chief, remember the guy who beats people up and then forces his friends to cover for him? Yeah, that guy. So there is a theory that's not talked about a lot because there's not a ton of information to back it up, but it is worth mentioning. Back in 2016, James Burke had already been accused of blocking the FBI from doing an investigation into the Gilgo Beach slash Long Island serial killer cases. He was also facing um, the other charges that we talked about earlier, and in December of 2015, 
The Gilbert family's attorney, John Ray, who again, just does not rest in this case, and I love him for it, he came forward with information in a press conference. And a woman who goes by the name Leanne had been working as an escort in the Oak Beach area in 2011, around the time that Shannon went missing. In the press conference, John Ray said, quote, This is the first time that there has been an actual connection between former Ch Chief Police Burke, Oak Beach, and prostitution, and that's why it's significant, end quote. Leanne stated in the press conference that she had attended multiple parties where James Burke was there and participating in the use of cocaine. She said that in one instance, he had forced her into performing oral sex, called her, quote, a bad whore, and threw a $100 bill at her. Classy. This incident allegedly happened a few months before he became the police chief. She also said she was willing to take a polygraph test um, to talk about these events, but I don't think that that ever happened. Of course, James Burke's attorney came forward saying that these accusations were false and also threw in some BS about how something like this should have been handled by telling law enforcement instead of in a public setting like a press conference. Then he said that the accusations were all false and slanderous. Here's my thing. In this case, the Suffolk County Police Department was blocking the FBI from being involved, refusing to look into certain things, and at the time that Leanne came forward, James Burke was already being investigated for his assault and cover-up. Why in the world would anyone in her position feel comfortable going to the police with this information? And let me say, really quick, I am by no means saying that he had a direct connection to these murders or that he was responsible to them. I think that's very unlikely. However, if what Leanne said was true, he may have known more people in this scene at the time who were involved and may know a lot more than what he's letting on, which would lead him to cover things up, allegedly. It's just speculation. Also, what would Leanne gain from coming forward with, with this information? Making an allegation like that could be extremely dangerous for her, and Leanne brought this up in the press conference because she saw herself as one of the victims. She said she could have ended up on that beach as well, and she said, in her own words, that she came forward because, quote, this could have been my grave. This is so much bigger than me. Again, badass women doing badass things. Uh, that being said, being a corrupt cop and making really horrible decisions does not make someone a serial killer. That's a really big jump, a really big stretch. There's also no other evidence pointing at him in this case as the killer. And I don't think anyone's necessarily trying to say that. I think it's just another link to show that there may have been more of a cover-up happening than was let on. I didn't see any more updates in that storyline, so... Take that with a grain of salt, just thought it was worth mentioning. I think by now we are all pretty aware of the stigma around sex work, and if you're not aware by the end of this episode, hi, it's a major problem. If you listen to or watch a lot of true crime content, you have probably heard many stories about killers targeting sex workers as their victims. And unfortunately, it does happen a lot because there is a stigma around this, quote, dangerous lifestyle that they lead. And I would just like to point out really quick, being involved in sex work is not what makes it dangerous. People who murder other people are the dangerous part of that equation. But somehow, in the media, and in the minds of a lot of people, including some members of law enforcement, these victims are somehow to blame. Headlines like, Jersey City prostitutes still missing, creates a barrier between sex workers and, quote, regular people. It dehumanizes them. Consciously or subconsciously, it creates a narrative that these people matter less, that the, quote, normal people don't need to worry because they're not the ones in danger. And using words like prostitute or hooker to describe murder victims puts a weird little bubble around these victims, and it's mostly used as a term to describe them as being less important than others. Also, sex work is a job. <laughs> when is the last time you read a headline that said something like, target cashier brutally murdered, loan officer still missing, dog walker stabbed? 
This is something I've never really noticed before I became obsessed with all things true crime. To put it simply, it's a really big issue and it's really, really bad. Dehumanizing women and men who are involved in sex work somehow creates this weird story that being a sex worker is worse than being a murderer. And that's disgusting. And obviously not everyone feels that way, not everyone means for it to sound that way, but there is a weird bubble around it. And that is why so many serial killers target sex workers. Because in many of these stories, the victims are not searched for properly and no one even notices that they go missing. So if this is your first time hearing that information, I hope that you learned something from this and will do better about how you think about and react to headlines like prostitute found dead. It's dehumanizing and it's gross. These victims are more than sex workers. They are sisters, they are moms, they are students, and most importantly, they're humans and society, especially law enforcement, should be treating their cases with the same respect and care as anyone else's cases because sex work should never be criminalized or judged more than murder, bottom line. Also, since we're here and I've already let my opinion out of the box, let's just end it here and final say on the subject. If there weren't people buying, there wouldn't be people selling. I see a lot of people judging people who participate in sex work, so let's just stop it. Stop telling people what they are and aren't allowed to do with their own bodies, and let's start creating the narrative that murdering people, even sex workers, is a crime and should be treated that way, and these should be looked into the same as anything else. Okay, end of rant. Putting the opinion back in the box, moving on. Thank you for sticking around for this really long episode. I really am hopeful that there's going to be more movement or at least some answers coming out in this case over the next few months, maybe years, because this is a huge case. Um, but I do think it's really exciting that there are changes being made in the Suffolk County Police Department where there was so much corruption and so many issues. I can't imagine how stressful that would be to try to rebuild that reputation, but it looks like they're doing a lot of good things. I highly recommend that you look into Geraldine Hart, my best friend. Um, she seems incredible. They are doing a lot of good work over there, and I just think it's really great, and it sets a very good standard for other police departments to start to reform and define certain things, so I think that's great. Um, also, let's all read the book Lost Girls. I re read parts of it to do this case, but I want to read the full thing. And then also watch the movie on Netflix. It's really, really good. Uh, I would really love to hear your theories on this case and discuss that more. So go talk to me over on Instagram. It's at TGI Crime Day. And send me your hometown murders and all of your hometown ghost stories to TGI Crime Day at Gmail. Um, until next week, lock your doors, carry your pepper spray, and stop using the word prostitute. Okay, bye! <laughs>